The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today is August 19th, 2021, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the 2021 Fall Perspectives Lecture Series. We welcome listeners from all over the world tonight on our live stream, uh, and we're excited to welcome our live audience right here uh, in our lecture hall tonight. For those of you listening live, remember that you can submit a question for our Q&A at the end of the lecture by either emailing the main USAHEC email address on our website or by sending us a note on Facebook. Just search USAHEC in Facebook and send us a message. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the U.S. Army War College sponsor the Perspectives Lecture Series, which is a seasonal lecture program that provides a discussion of current and historical topics critical to the understanding and practice of strategic leadership. Now, this is our first lecture of the fall 2021 season, kicking off the theme of cyber warfare. So at this point, it's my great honor to introduce tonight's speaker. Dr. Peter Campbell, Associate Professor of Political Science at Baylor University, studies international security and civil military relations, policy and strategy, insurgency and counterinsurgency, the just war tradition, military culture, and cyber warfare. Dr. Campbell earned his PhD in political science from the University of Notre Dame in 2014 and is a recipient of the General and Mrs. Matthew B. Ridgway Military History Scholar Grant from right here at the AHEC. He also participated in the 2018 U.S. Army War College National Security Seminar on Leadership Development. Dr. Campbell has authored several articles and books on military innovation and cybersecurity, so please help me welcome Dr. Peter Campbell. a safe distance away now. Hi everybody, great to be back here. Um, spent some time in the archives here at the uh, AHEC. Uh, took pictures of thousands of documents, uh, many of which I probably never looked at again after that, but <laughs> that's the, the life of somebody trying to do military history. Um, and when I was doing that, I was doing uh, writing a book um, Shameless plug available on Amazon.com called Military Realism, uh, The Logic and Limits of Force and Innovation in the U.S. Army, where I talked about um, how, how and why U.S. Army doctrine has changed from John F. Kennedy uh, until today, basically. Uh, so, but tonight I'm going to talk to you about statecraft and cyber war. Um, and there, there's, there are important links here, and I think you'll understand as I go on uh, how we got from talking about Army doctrine to talking about um, cyber. Okay, so statecraft in cyberspace, is the best cyber defense a good cyber offense? That's the title of my talk tonight. So after a number of high-profile um, high breaches and agencies, companies, I'm sure there's a number of people in this room whose identities have been uh, maybe stolen or definitely, uh, you know, China knows about, you know, where your bank accounts are and all these other things that went into your security clearance uh, because they broke into 
um, different U.S. agencies, right? Private companies, critical infrastructure, okay? Uh, U.S. cyber strategists and some in the executive and Congress want to go on the offense in cyberspace, okay? They want to reach out and uh, attack those who are attacking us. In cyberspace, the offense has the upper hand, and the United States cannot, quote, retreat behind a Maginot line of firewalls or it will risk being overrun. Okay, this, this idea that we can't just hang out behind the Maginot line like the French before World War II. So these calls to unleash the cyber offense, for me, led me to ask, well, is it better to be on the offense or the defense in cyber? Right? Is there, is there, are there inherent advantages in one or the other? And this isn't just about stealing emails, okay? We're talking here about serious uh, attacks on critical infrastructure that can cripple countries, right? Because of uh, the trove released by Edward Snowden, pictured here with his good buddy Vladimir Putin, uh, we know something about what the U.S. has been doing in cyber, okay? So Operation Olympic Games, right, also known as Stuxnet, was uh, allegedly the U.S. Uh, and Israeli attack on uh, U.S. or on Iran's uh, Natanz nuclear reactor. In the same trove, we discovered an operation called uh, Operation Nitro Zeus. Okay, I don't know who's naming these things, but clearly they play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe I don't know what the what the motivation is here. But this was to shut down the power grid in Tehran. Russia and China are executing and preparing for offensive operations in cyberspace, okay? Colonial pipeline linked to the Russian government. Russia has attacked Ukraine's power grid as part of the operations in Crimea and has penetrated the U.S. power grid in a number of uh, places, okay? So these are very serious uh, capabilities that we're talking about. So, some people argue that there will never be a war of bits and bytes that will decide the fate of nations, right? Cyber isn't going to lead to victory for any country in World War III. Okay. But actions and reactions in cyberspace will impact and have already impacted international relations. Okay. Cyber attacks on weaker states, for instance, can lead to retaliation into other uh, levels of combat, right? So, for example, Iran's retaliation against the United States uh, in the Straits of Hormuz and uh, drone and rocket attacks on Saudi Aramco, right? Those could all be very convincingly linked to U.S. cyber attacks on Iran, okay? So basically, when an actor does not have the same capability in cyber to retaliate through that domain, but you're attacking them through that domain, they can escalate to actual physical uses of violence in retaliation. Okay? So cyber has this danger of escalation. A big part of cyber is reconnaissance, right? Breaking into other uh, countries' networks and determining uh, what kinds of capabilities they have and how you're going to attack them. The problem is that if you're discovered while you're engaged in this reconnaissance, it can be seen as the attack itself, and that could actually lead to escalation, right? 
this especially becomes a problem in a crisis. Okay, because when states are in crises with each other and they start seeing people trying to infiltrate into their computer network, they start to engage in worst case scenario thinking and they think, well, I better attack before they take away my means of, of retaliation. Okay? Um, so to prepare cyber attacks, for instance, against North Korea, if you want to attack their cyber army, right, you need to attack, you'll need to break into networks in China. You'll actually probably also have to break into networks in India and in Europe, okay? because a cyber army is virtual, right? They don't all have to be in the same place to coordinate their activities. Right, so it's not, it's not like trying to retaliate against a, a standard conventional military force, or even an, uh, you know, a guerrilla or terrorist organization. But there's a big problem, right? Cyber is very attractive as a tool of foreign policy. Okay? And there's a number of reasons for that, right? Leaders are tempted to use cyber because they, just, they perceive this anonymity, right, and this low cost, right? You launch a covert cyber attack, there's no burning hulks of airplanes and the helicopters and airplanes in the desert, right? Their perception is, this is what you see. Okay, game over, do you want to try again? Sure, right, because nobody's going to know it was me. Okay, so there's a lot of attraction to using cyber covert action on the part of people engaged in statecraft. So it seems like covert actions are going to stay covert. But as I've already tried to say, right, these offense is attractive but dangerous. Okay. Also cost, right? Anybody who, who will, will, they'll come to me and they'll say, well, but offense has the advantage because with enough money and resources, you can break into any network, right? And that's absolutely true. But the fact of the matter is that's incredibly expensive, right? It's incredibly expensive to develop cyber exploits like the kind that was used uh, to attack the Natanz nuclear reactor. Okay, and then use it or lose it. This is a very important point here, right? That, right, you fire a missile at somebody, right? It blows up and you're like, oh, that worked and it'll probably work the next time. That's not the case with cyber exploits, right? You send that exploit out, it does its damage, but then the people who were attacked can examine that exploit and say, okay, well, let's just patch against that, okay? So when you use that exploit, you lose that exploit, okay? So you've just spent millions of dollars developing this exploit, now it's useless because you've used it, right? So my argument is that we must confront calls for cyber offense with insights about the power of the cyber defense, okay? And I think that's critical to US strategy in this area. Okay, what's at stake, right? Why is it important that we don't go off and turn cyber into the Wild West? Well, after the Cold War, it was agreed among strategists in the United States that most important, the biggest threat to the United States was to the sea lines of communication that connected the American economy to the rest of the world. Okay? That was the source of American prosperity and power, and if the liberal capitalist democracy of the United States was gonna thrive, and its power was gonna increase, and it was gonna hold on to this unipolar moment, it was gonna have to protect the sea lines of communication, okay? Through these guys. <laughs> 
Okay, so today it's no different. Right? The US must also defend the cyber lines of communication, or silocs. And this is key to international, because they're key to international commerce and communications. And that means it's key, they're key to US prosperity and power. Okay, just an example. International supply chains are managed through cloud servers, right? And near real-time information cannot be done without the internet. I mean, it can be, but it's way less efficient, right? As we saw with the NotPetya attack, right, that got into the systems at Maersk, right, one of the largest international shipping logistics companies in the world, maybe the largest, shut down huge swaths of their computer systems, and they lost billions of dollars, right? Remember in business, like in war, time is the one resource you can never get back. Right, so Maersk is never gonna get that money back, right? And money's a key issue here, right? We estimate that in 2021, the cost of cyber crime alone was twice the size of the GDP of Germany. The largest economy in Europe. Twice the size. That's how much cyber crime has cost uh, private and state actors. There's also, I think, a moral issue here, right? And it's that developing countries, right, the, the phenomena of globalization, it's clear, has pulled more people out of poverty than any economic phenomenon ever in the history of the world, okay? The internet and the cyber lines of communication contribute greatly to that, okay? So if the cyber lines of communication start being constricted, right? It's not just the United States that's going to be harmed by this, right? It's developing countries that are trying to pull themselves out of poverty, okay? So there's definitely a moral component to this. These virtual lines of communication must be secure, but they also need to be held open, okay? The implications are huge. Okay, so ironically, Offensive actions by the United States through cyber endanger the open silocs that the US and so many other countries in the world depend on. Okay, because if you're attacking everyone through this domain, right, it becomes very hard to do things like make friends, right? And the only thing worse than fighting with allies is fighting without them, right, as Winston Churchill said. So insecure internets will lead to cyber balkanization. We're already seeing this, right? We're already seeing China, Russia, Iran, right? A number of uh, African countries are trying to build an internet that they can shut off, okay? For political reasons, but also for economic reasons, okay? The US, by the way, is not immune to this idea, right? You ever heard of the term isolationism, right? America. Uh, has a very isolationist uh, bent in its foreign policy, so it's not necessarily immune from trying to develop a national internet. Okay. But a national internet will be less efficient, less innovative, more expensive. Okay, and you know, you're all Americans, so you probably understand a little bit about how capitalism works. If there's no market competition, right, uh, things don't work very well. Okay, there's not a lot of innovation. 
So this will undermine the economic advantages that the that internet connectivity provides. Okay, so those are all very bad things for US interests. So I argue that we must develop cyber tactics and strategy with a heavily defensive component to keep the cyber lines of communications open and to further the interests of the United States and its allies, and as I said, also developing countries around the world. Now I argue we can actually make a virtue of this necessity, right, because of what I'll talk about with the advantages of the defense. Okay, so basic argument, defensive cyber tactics and strategies have clear advantages over offensive ones. By tactics here, I mean, right, in military terms, the defense of a position in an engagement. In cyber, the defense of a single computer network. Okay, by strategy, I mean the, coordina the coordination of cyber means with political ends to defend networks of networks. Okay, so what is strategy in war? Strategy in war is the coordination of military means with political ends. Okay, so whenever I use the word strategy this evening, always think politics. Okay, politics and, st and strategy cannot be divorced from one another. Okay, and I want to import the insights about the power of the defense from conventional warfare into the cyber realm, because I think they're highly importable. Tactics and tactical and strategic advantages in cyber can actually reinforce one another. Okay, so it's not as if you just have advantages in cyber tactics and then adv advantages in cyber strategy. They work together to strengthen each other. I'll, I'll go into what that looks like. So I really want to reduce reliance on cyber offense because I think it's dangerous and counterproductive. Okay, and I want to help develop better cyber tactics and strategies through this analogy of offense and defense in conventional war. Okay, so there's actually a, many objections to this, but here's just two. Okay. The first one is people say, well, the technology to do what you're talking about doesn't even exist, right? Well, that might be true, but conceptual thinking, as we learned in the nuclear age, right? Nobody's, nobody fought a nuclear war. Right? but we built a lot of technology based on concepts. Conceptual thinking can help drive technological innovation. Okay, if we say, here's what we want to do, and then we bring it to the, the technology people, they'll figure out a way to do it. Okay? Not in every case, but a lot of conceptual work has to happen first. Some people argue that importing concepts from other forms of warfare into cyber will fail or hinder good cyber strategy and policy and tactics. Well, my argument is that's, that ship has already sailed, right? We're already doing that. We're importing these insights, but the result has been calls for the use of offense in cyber, which I think are dangerous, right? Have dangerous consequences. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. It jammed. Here's another big concern that people have. Let's keep the military out of cyber, okay? Because they all want to be Napoleon, right? So if you make the military part of cyber, there's going to be consequences. And the military is already part of cyber in a really big way in the United States, okay? Every branch of the US military has a cyber force. Okay? So that makes a lot of people nervous, right? There's fear that they'll take their aggressive ideas Right? And then import them into the cyber realm 
and start demanding things like preventive cyber war. Okay. They'll, they'll try and draw from Patton's insight, right? In case of doubt, attack. Right? He wrote this to a subordinate in the Second World War. He's like, if you ever have a doubt about what to do, attack. So the worry is that kind of mentality is going to come into the cyber realm and you're going to get all these um, aggressive cyber tactics and strategies. What they're really worried about, especially academics like me, right, are worried about a cyber cult of the offensive. Okay, so the cult of the offensive, this was the powerful belief in the lead up to World War I among every military and a lot of political leaders as well that the offense had all the advantages. Okay, a lot of faith. The war is going to be over by Christmas because offense has all the advantages. This is already starting to seep into commentary on cyber, right? Militaries think first of offensive weapons. It's in their DNA, says Richard Clark and Kanaki in their book, The Fifth Domain. Okay, so we're worried about that. But I would say that military thinkers are not always advocating offense. Okay, and I know this because I've read a lot of doctrine. Okay, so I argue in my book that the experience of and preparation for war makes military officers actually cautious about what you can achieve with force. Okay? Very cautious about what you can achieve with force. In war, the easiest thing is difficult because of constant friction. Okay? So they don't have this sort of glamorized version of Napoleon. Button sticking, right? This is their, this is the, this is the image of Napoleon they have, right? The retreat from Russia. Military experience breeds a respect for the power of the defense over the offense. Okay, and I'll talk about where we see that. And military officers are often much less aggressive than civilian leaders. And we have numerous historical examples of this. Okay, talk about a few. So Bob Gates said, this is the portion of the program where I read to you. Okay, you can get it to work. In my experience over the years, Sorry, it was my experience over the years that one of the biggest misimpressions held by the public has been that our military is always straining at the leash, wanting to use force in any situation. The reality is just the opposite. In more than 20 years of attending meetings in the Situation Room, my experience was that the biggest doves in Washington wear uniforms. Okay, so this public perception of military officers as constantly gung-ho looking to use force is not accurate. It's not accurate. General David Shoup, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he got really uncomfortable with how the civilians were talking about a land invasion of Cuba. Okay, they're like, yeah, well, and if that doesn't work, we'll just launch a land, we'll launch a land invasion of Cuba. So General Shoup put up a map of the United States on the wall. And then he superimposed a map of Cuba over that to show that it goes all the way from Chicago to Washington, D.C. And then he took a little dot, and he put that little dot right in the middle of Cuba. And all the civilians in the room said, sir, what is that dot? And he said, gentlemen, that represents the size of the island of Tarawa, and it took us three days 
and 18,000 Marines to take it. Okay? Attacking a prepared defense is incredibly difficult. He could have also used Iwo Jima, right? Eight square miles as compared to Cuba's 42,000 square miles, where the U.S. loses almost 7,000 killed in action and 20,000 wounded in action. Or he could have used Okinawa, 1% the area of Cuba, where the U.S. had almost 66,000 casualties, 70,000 Japanese soldiers killed, and 100,000 civilians killed. Attacking a prepared defense is incredibly difficult. Okay, there's a deep respect for the defense among people in the military. So I argue that militaries have, military officers have a lot of insight about the power of defense. And if we cut the military out of cyber, right, we'll be cutting ourselves off from the insights that they offer about the power of the defense and caution surrounding attack. And as I'll try to argue, these insights are essential in the face of dangerous recommendations to go on the offense in cyber. Okay, and those advocates of the offense don't really acknowledge this, in my estimation. We're already seeing it. Okay, so after 10 years, already the evidence that cyber command is far more defensive than offensive, right? As Clark and Kanaki said, surprise, surprise, cyber command isn't offensive enough, right? Well, I'm confused. If it's in their DNA, then why aren't they constantly going on the offense? Well, I guess that's for their next book. Okay, everybody should recognize these two, okay? Don Starry and uh, I always want to say General Dupuis, right? But uh, as the, one of the former um, uh, Summers who was here when I was doing uh, research into my book, I said Dupuis, and he said, no, I don't think it's that Frenchified, right? Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll constantly pronounce his name wrong. So during the Cold War, scholars and the public were worried that the U.S. Army was going to focus on the offense, was going to be obsessed with attack, right? But the U.S. Army was not focused on offense during the Cold War, and it's pretty obvious why, right, if you think about it. The U.S. and its NATO allies were hopelessly outnumbered in Europe, right? The U.S. Army had to develop a defensive doctrine, especially from 1962 to uh, 1986, when the second uh, edition of Airland Battle comes out. So the question became then, how could defensive tactics, right, and this is probably remediation for a lot of people in the room, right, how would defensive tactics shift this imbalance, right? When, when the U.S. has 14 divisions and the Soviets have 56 divisions, right, you have to fight on the defensive, okay? But again, the Army tries to analyze and say, how can we make a virtue of this necessity? Okay. Let's do some history. Okay, note, as I said, the cult of the offensive, right? One of the big causes of World War I was a misplaced faith in offense, right? Which is exactly what I'm arguing is happening in cyber right now, at least among political leaders. 
Battle of the Somme, 1916, okay? British attack on the Western Front. There's a preparatory barrage of, by uh, 1,500 artillery pieces of 1,500,000 shells. Okay. The first day of the battle, July 1st, 1916, almost 20,000 soldiers are killed, 35,000 wounded, and 2,000 missing in action. Battle of Passchendaele, 1917. Not to be outdone, British and French operation, they launch a preparatory barrage of 3,500,000 shells. Okay, so uh, that doesn't solve the problem because the French and the British sustain 400,000 casualties in that operation. Okay, so why was it so bloody? Why were these battles so bloody? And the answer, as usual, is they're fighting the Germans. Okay? But what was it? It's not just that they're amazing fighters, right? It's that the Germans were masters of the defense in depth. Okay, so early parts of the war, you'd have these, this, these stars in the front here. Those represent where the artillery fell. And then this represents the depth of the German position. Okay, so the artillery wasn't even hitting the German position. And then when the Allies got into the German position, they realized how much depth it had, and it just chewed them up. Okay? And then in the back here, you see these, these rectangles. Right? Those are the Germans preparing for a counterattack. Okay? There are three rules in life. right? Death, taxes, and the Germans will always counterattack. Okay, that's something I've been told is important. Okay, so what are the tactical advantages of the defense that the Germans were using in order to produce these insane ratios of casualties on the attacker's side? Well, this should all be very familiar, right? The attacker must move, right? To attack, you have to move. What does that mean? You have to expose yourself to friction and deadly fire. Okay, that's why you need three attackers to subdue one defender. The defender knows the terrain better than the attacker does. Okay? So, and often it's been prepared in advance by the defender that the attacker must attack through that terrain. The defender can use its manipulation of ter terrain to channel the attacker into unfavorable positions. The defender wears down the attacker because as the attacker moves into the depth of the defensive position, the defender pulls back into the depth of the position, and then the attacker has to keep going. Okay, so in general, friction is much worse for the attacker than it is for the defender. Okay. Now, there are more, but you know, we'd be here all night if we went into all of them. So another really important one, because we're going to make the transition to cyber here in a minute, is that the defender observes the attacker, right? In the defense in depth, the defender gathers information on the attacker's capabilities, mode of operation, and intentions. Okay, how do they do this specifically? Okay, well, the Germans, one of the things the Germans did was they had these concrete machine gun emplacements. And often, they would leave a number of these positions empty. Right? There'd actually be no defenders inside those positions, right? But the attacker doesn't know that, right? The attacker has to deploy his forces and assume that there's defenders inside that empty position. 
Well, this gives huge advantage to the defender because the defender, who's not even in the position but is observing, right, can observe the deployment, gather intelligence, right, see what kind of forces they have, what kind of support the attacker has, what methods they'll be using to breach the defenses, right, and then what their overall intentions are. Okay, so that's just one tactical uh, example. So then this intelligence is then disseminated through the whole defense to strengthen it, and the defender hasn't even started resisting yet. Okay, so the advantages are starting to accrue pretty rapidly. So here's a big objection that I hear a lot, right, is that only the attacker enjoys the initiative. The attacker is acting, the defender is reacting. On the contrary, US Army doctrine rediscovered during the Cold War that actually the defender could enjoy the initiative if the attacker was responding to the defender's plan. Right? Previously, the defensive advantage meant a three-to-one rule. U.S. Army from 1965 onwards said that the lethality and range of modern weapons meant this had to be increased to six-to-one. Okay? You had to double the number of attackers you sent against the defense. But the defender has also important advantages in the transition to offense. Okay, and this is, again, the Germans will always counterattack. This is why. Right? The best offense actually starts with a good defense. The defender transitions to the attack when the attacker enjoys none of the advantages of the defense. Right? Think of the transition game in basketball, right? or an interception in a football game. Right? where you get an interception, all of a sudden, a bunch of players whose job is it to be on the offense have to start playing defense, right? They're not very good at it, okay? So the defender has significant counterattack advantages. So the most efficient attack is when we begin on the defensive, and then preferably in depth, and then counterattack, right? And this is really the heart of air land battle. Okay, the heart of airline battle and actually active defense. So how do we import these insights? Okay, as I said, the defender can leave a few positions empty to give the impression of vulnerability to draw on the attacker, gather intelligence on them, right? We see this in cyber, right? The defender leaves obvious vulnerabilities in a network to draw hackers in. Okay, this is something that, as I'll argue, has been They've been doing this kind of since the 80s, right? Gather information about the attacker's capabilities, intentions, and origins. This is key, right? Because what's the biggest problem in cyber? Anonymity. Who is actually attacking me? It's hard to tell, right? But if you're on the defense and you're observing what the attacker is doing, you're gathering that vital intelligence. Okay, all the while the defender remains concealed, and they're gathering intelligence, on, uh, that's one of their main advantages. This helps overcome the anonymity problem. Okay, as I said, this isn't new, right? Clifford Stoll, when he was defending the Berkeley Laboratory Network in the 1980s, right, drew the attacker into, um, here we go, uh, honeypots or false networks, right, where he channeled the attacker in, and then he gathered information on the attacker's capabilities, intentions, and origin. Turns out it was a uh, West German uh, teenager, I believe, who was selling the secrets to the KGB. 
and it's, he actually tracked him down in the end. Uh, more recently, right, Operation Cross Swords, which is uh, an operation, an exercise by NATO's uh, Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence. That's a giant acronym, um, right? This is a NATO, NATO red team hackers versus defenders from a private cybersecurity firm, right? The defender set up decoy machines with fictitious human resource database, okay? And then the red team used the credentials that they stole from this database to break into a network that was actually fictitious. Okay? It wasn't actually the network that they were trying to break into, but they took advantage of the easy um, target. Okay? The defender prepared the terrain in the network that the attacker would enter. Right? The attacker thought the whole time they had the initiative. Right? But they were actually responding to the defender's plan. Okay, so the defender actually had the initiative here. Okay, this is a really long quote, and I want to leave time for Q&A, so we can come back to this later. But this is basically the representative of the cybersecurity company saying that they did all the things that I've been saying that the cyber defender does. Okay, we can talk more about that in Q&A. Frustrating the attacker is a, uh, is a very important thing that cyber defenders do. Okay? Attackers, attacks can also end when the attacker becomes frustrated by a well-ordered defense and breaks off their attack. Right? Hackers are often, you know, they're attackers of opportunity. Right? If they meet resistance, often they're going to break off the attack and go and try and find a path of least resistance. Now, the ability to frustrate the attacker, I argue, is exponentially greater in cyberspace than in conventional war. And that's because the terrain in cyberspace is man-made. Okay? You can manipulate the terrain in cyberspace in ways you could never manipulate the real world. Right? It would be the equivalent of changing the density of the atmosphere so that bombs don't fall, as Richard Clark said in The Fifth Domain. Okay, so that means that the defense can literally shift the ground under the feet of the attacker, right, by changing their network. And I'll give you a few examples of that. Okay, MITRE cybersecurity. What did they do? They decided we're not going to assume that we can make our networks impenetrable. Instead, we are, so, so their priority is no longer to simply eject the attacker out of the system as soon as they get in, okay? Okay, because breaking into a network for an attacker is only the first step, right? So part of the reason why people think offense has the advantage of, in cyber is because they say, well, they broke in, therefore the defense failed. Well, that's not true, right? Once the attacker breaks into the system, they then have to pivot across the network to reach their objective, right? Just because one of your employees falls for that phishing scam doesn't mean that that hacker has now gained access to the most secure parts of the network, right? They have to map the network, okay? So the Russians were in the Democratic National Committee network for months, maybe even a full year, before they exfiltrated the emails that caused such a stir. Once breached, the MITRE cyber defenders observed the attackers attempting to map and pivot across the network. 
they then reconfigured the network and made the attacker's maps obsolete. Okay, so imagine you're trying to find your way through a maze and you've mapped the whole maze and then as you're walking forward, somebody's changing the map behind you, okay? And the map ahead of you. You don't actually know where you're going. Okay, this is a pretty, pretty important advantage. This wasted the attacker's time. All the while, the defender is observing the behavior of the attacker to discover their methods, intentions, and most importantly, their identity. Okay, so imagine if you're the British attacking a German position in depth only to realize that the position you've just attacked doesn't actually exist, right? And there are actually multiple fictitious positions that you could be attacking into and you're not actually getting anywhere. Okay, these are significant advantages. Okay, now this is, a, this is an important question. What if you have to go on the offense, right? Sometimes you just have to go on the offense. Well, the cyber defender's counterattack capability uses superior intelligence about an attacker's capabilities, methods, intentions, and identity, right? You don't want to attack the wrong person or group, right? And the counterattack will achieve surprise, especially if the defender is unobserved. So the best cyber attack is actually a stalwart defense followed by counterattack. Okay. Even offensive cyber doctrine and strategy, therefore, have to have important defensive elements. Okay. It's probably why we see so much defense in cyber command, right? It's because they realize, well, if we're going to ever go on the attack, we better have some defense as well. What's the corollary of all this argument, right? It's that if America is on the offense in cyber, then all the advantages that I've just enumerated, America's adversaries are enjoying them, okay? They're enjoying the power of the defense, and they're getting ready for a potentially devastating counterattack because they've been taking advantage of the power of the defense in cyber. So what about the balance between offense and defense in cyber today? Right? Absolutely true. In the early internet, it was a very open architecture, right? It was pretty easy for the attacker to attack. But now the technology has shifted the balance back to the defender. Okay? It's sort of like the German blitzkrieg, right? All that amazing technology that the Germans had that they knocked the French out of the war in six weeks, once that technology was understood and incorporated with the ad tactical advantages of the defense, the advantage shifted back to the defense. Okay? And we see this, interestingly, the Germans are the ones who take advantage of this uh, when the Allies land at Normandy. Right? Why, does it, why is it so hard to break out of the Bocage? Right? Because the Germans, you're fighting the Germans, right? who are organized in depth. Okay? In one battle, they destroyed half of all the tanks the Allies brought to Normandy with them. Okay, because they took advantage of the defense. Okay, the same thing's happening in cyberspace. Okay, finally, let's talk about the implications for strategy. Okay, and this guy's got to show up. Right? I'm at the Army War College, so I've got to talk about this guy. This is Karl von Clausewitz. This is actually the bust of Karl von Clausewitz, right, that is at the Army War College. Interestingly, uh, donated by the class of 1982, right, the class that 
first reads and starts to try and implement Erlang Battle. Okay? And Clausewitz was one of the big inspirations of General Starry and company. Okay, what does Clausewitz say about statecraft? Defense has many tactical advantages. I've already talked about that, right? But Clausewitz says it also has very powerful strategic advantages. Because this is, what, this, is, this is from book six of On War, if you want to uh, read it. It's the chapter on defense, right? Where he actually talks about the international system, and he says that in statecraft, there's a tendency among states towards the promotion of the present international balance and stability, right? And away from revision and instability. So aggressive states in the international system will always encounter friction from the whole. The, defend, the defender of the established international balance, Clausewitz says, will have, find that it has far more friends than enemies. And he says that a vigorous strategic defense will always attract allies. So, the U.S. should be the champion of defense in cyber and open cyber lines of communication. Okay, so a robust cyber defense will attract allies because so many countries, right, all across the world, developed and underdeveloped countries, right, depend on the cyber lines of communication for economic reasons, right? So that the people who rely on that system are going to resist anybody who tries to upset that status quo. The advantages of defense in cyber and tactics reinforce one another, right? Because strategy, especially for the United States, is all about allies, right? What do you do with allies in cyber? You share information. Well, how do you gain information? You're on the defense, right? You're taking advantage of that advantage of the defense and you're gathering that tactical information to strengthen the strategic defense, the defense of the network of networks. Okay, cyber alliances and partnerships are key, right? Stopping attacks requires cooperation from private industry and other, other countries. So this isn't like, you know, World War II, where all your, almost all your allies are countries, right? In cyber, you're gonna need to have a lot of private sector allies. Aggressive cyber tactics, on the other hand, undermine trust between the U.S. and present and potential allies. So, for instance, the attempts by the NSA to infiltrate Google uh, caused quite a stir in Google. And they say things like, they spend more time trying to stop the U.S. from breaking into their systems than they spend trying to stop China from breaking into their systems. Okay? Probably an over-exaggeration. Cyber defense could also provide a new key role for NATO allies, right? I was at NATO uh, headquarters in Belgium in 2006, and all the briefers were saying to the European powers was, please, please, please spend 2% of your GDP on defense, right? We, uh, depends who you talk to. We're either really close or not that close anymore. In the case of cyber, right, there is an economic self-interest in producing a powerful cyber defense, right, among European powers, right? Remember, 
two times the GDP of, of Germany every year is lost to cybercrime. Okay, so there's, it's a lot cheaper also to build this kind of capability than a massive conventional military. Okay. This, one of the things that I'd really like to do, if I do nothing else, is to sort of tamp down the threat inflation in cyber, right? Americans in general, or at least maybe people in the news media, tend to underestimate the importance of things like allies, right? It seems like maybe America has to do everything itself. But allies are vitally important, right? Yes, it's true that minor powers like Iran and North Korea can punch above their weight in cyber, but so can America's allies, right? Canada, Great Britain, the Netherlands, right? All these countries, although they're small in terms of population and the military, right, they actually have incredibly advanced cyber capabilities. Okay? The British especially. Well, they've been good at this stuff since Enigma, so it shouldn't be that surprising. Okay? We need clarity about the power of defense, and if we have that, my hope is that we'll sort of take down the temperature of the public debate of cyber and have less people advocating for cyber Attacks. Okay, so what's what's next, right? Next steps. Because just because cyber defense has advantages doesn't mean it's easy. Okay. First off, if you're going to prepare the terrain, you have to know what the terrain looks like, right? And the fact of the matter is, some companies don't actually know what their network looks like, right? They have they've built it for function, and then they kind of never look back on it once it works. Okay. But if you're going to prepare it for defense you need to know what it looks like. So you need to explore the terrain that you have and figure out how to exploit it. There is much more research required into artificial intelligence-enabled defense. Okay? Because things happen really fast in cyber. right? So a lot of intrusion detection in cyber is actually done by artificial intelligence, and it's actually really effective. Right? It's really, really effective. But in order for artificial intelligence to work, it has to learn. And the only way it can learn is with information, right? So again, tactics reinforcing strategy. You gather that information from having a defense in depth, and you use it then to train artificial intelligence. Red teaming, okay, this is, again, given where I'm giving this talk, this isn't surprising that red teaming is important. But the importance of having a red team that tries to penetrate your own network is that it makes you more secure and it develops your offensive capability without risking escalation. Okay? So just because we're on the defense doesn't mean we can't develop offensive capabilities without risking escalation. Very important point, right? especially for the Army and the US military, which is the most networked military in the world, fighting, right? Fighting while, in, while using this network. Don't focus on network impenetrability. It's impossible, okay? Focus instead on giving depth to your network to absorb and confound attackers and identify them and resist them while you're fighting, okay? So produce resilience, okay? Conclusion, finally, cyberspace, not necessarily offense dominant, as I've try been trying to argue here. Okay? Defensive cyber capabilities have clear advantages over offensive ones. 
But some would say the U.S. is on the offense, and I think that's a bad thing. Military insights about the power of the defense can help us develop better cyber tactics and strategies, avoid unnecessary escalation, and better protect the U.S. The U.S.'s interests in terms of pros and, and the prosperity that we all enjoy, meaning primarily economic. In cyberspace, the U.S. must be primarily on the defensive, right? And as I've tried to argue, the U.S. can make a virtue of that necessity. Okay, I'm really looking forward to your questions. Uh, thank you for your time. All, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a few minutes uh, for some uh, for some questions and answers. Uh, we've got Mindy back in the back there with a uh, with a, a microphone. If you do have a question, please raise your hand. She'll come to you with the uh, with the microphone. I'll get started here with a, with a, just a few questions we have from the internet uh, from our from our listeners out in internet land. We'll go ahead and get the get started with that. I do want to uh, remind everyone who's out there. Uh, listening through our live stream, uh, please do go to our Facebook page, uh, search USAHEC and hit the messenger button. You can send me a message directly for us to ask. Uh, you can also go to our website at USAHEC.org, uh, go to our uh, contact us page and find our main email address and we're also monitoring the email. So to get us started, one of the uh, first questions we have here is if you could comment on the future in training, where are these cyber soldiers that are going to actually do this come from? What are the manpower requirements that you see? And especially, is this a military responsibility? That's a very good question. Um, I think that the manpower issue is a very important one. Um, I think that we are lacking in the manpower area in this. and. Honestly, just more training and education needs to happen. That might include um, a greater emphasis uh, on things like uh, trade schools rather than universities. Okay, I'm, I work at a university, so I really shouldn't be saying this, right? But not everybody should go to university, and some of the uh, cyber army that will be required to defend the networks will come from these trade schools. So I think in terms of policy, the US government should uh, do everything it can to expand uh, those kinds of schools rather than having schools, having everybody coming from departments of engineering at, at universities, okay? Um, what was the second part of the question? Sorry, put you on the spot. <laughs> Sorry, sir, we've we're, uh, got some more questions rolling in here. I'm trying to get those jotted down. So the, the full question was, where do you see the future in training of these, and I quote, cyber soldiers uh, going to come from, and is it a military responsibility to train those uh, individuals to, to work at that? Yeah. No, I think it is definitely a military responsibility to, to train these individuals, but I would probably point back to uh, the scientists and soldiers who fought in the Second World War for the United States, right? Lots of them, when they were young, right, they had ham radios, right? They were very into science as children, right? And this is the same thing with cyber now, right? You have lots of young generations of people who are coming up to spend their whole lives working with computers, right? This was not me, okay? I remember very distinctly in high school when I saw my first Mac computer, right? And I was blown away by this thing called the internet. The kids now are not in this situation, right? They've lived their whole lives with this technology. So as time passes, I think just 
by the law of averages, more young people who have these kinds of capabilities are going to come into the US military. And well, I mean, if you're going to keep an all-volunteer force, then you're going to have to compensate those individuals to come into uh, the, the force, unless you want to reinstitute the draft just for cyber soldiers, which probably wouldn't be very popular. But. Uh, I've been in technology since high school, and I've, I've watched through the years. We outsourced everything. Like, I don't think there's a cell phone made in this country. So the technology we're using to do this, where's it made? Mm -hmm. And they also I watched, uh, there's not much incentive to be a computer programmer, but you can make so much playing professional sports. <laughs> we have to get our priorities straight here, or we're gonna be on the short end of the stick. That's my opinion. Right. Um, yes, yeah, so, I think there's, if Silicon Valley teaches us anything though, there's, there can be a lot of money made in the technology areas, right? And, and this is one of the reasons why alliances with private companies are so important, right? We're not gonna develop the experts for this just through um, government initiatives, right? And the first part of your question was? Right, yes. Yes, so, and that the, well, I mean, the example that I think I would use instead is the um, Chinese 5G networks, right, that they've been expanding into Europe and that the U.S. has tried to counter. That is definitely an issue uh, that needs to be countered. I would caution people uh, not to get too excited about government intervention in these areas, however. I think that AT&T and private sector companies in Europe, for instance, would be much better at developing this kind of technology than, say, the United States government. Sure. Yeah. So. So I mean, I think no strategy is without its risks, right? But the downside of trying to have everything made in America in terms of this technology economically is huge, right? Right, that's why it's one, and, and, and pulling it back to the United States, I think, isn't, isn't a way to solve that, right? They'll, they'll, it isn't feasible, right? And there will always be that risk of uh, penetration through these, um, these other avenues, the risk will never go away. It's all about managing the risk. Uh, sir, we, we do have a question from the internet here. This one's actually from uh, one of our very own War College students. Uh, Dr. Cam Campbell, uh, what role do you see international norms of state cyber behavior playing in this discussion? And do you think they or cyber deterrence are effective? So again, about uh, international norms and cyber deterrence and, and the effectiveness thereof. Okay, so I have to show my cards a little bit. I'm a realist, right? So I don't really believe that norms have a very powerful effect in international relations, okay? Um, I think the reason that states would sign on to this more defensive kind of network would be out of self-interest, right? They want the cyber lines of communication to remain open 
because that's the key to economic prosperity, right? Especially for countries in the developing world and the, the advanced economies of Europe and North America. So I don't see norms playing a big role. Part of it is because I don't think they do in general. And then the other part is, as the technolo technology changes so rapidly that by the time you've written a treaty to establish norms, the technology's changed, right? So nuclear weapons, for instance, we can write up treaties about that because we know what nuclear weapons do. Cyber's not like that, okay? It's, it's constantly changing. So it's all, it would be very difficult to set international norms for these kinds of, uh, these kinds of capabilities. And honestly, I think as long as states profit from violating those norms, they will continue to violate those norms. Hey, good evening, Dr. Campbell. Uh, thank you for uh, your time this evening. Uh, Pleasure. Uh, Jamel Neville, I'm from the Army War College as well. Uh, I am the, the Marine Corps uh, cyberspace officer attending uh, the school. So uh, congratulations on going a full hour uh, speaking at the unclass level <laughs> on a very important topic. Uh, I will say that a lot of the things that you outlined there are, are taking place uh, as we speak by some very amazing people uh, there in Fort Meade. Uh, what I can share is, you know, the election security piece and obviously the uh, outing of malicious cyber actors uh, happens on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I'll go and stop there before I get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> okay. But I do want to get your insights in regard to, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of Joe Nakasone's approach with, with persistent engagement. Uh, it's a new kind of approach that the, uh, the U.S. Cybercom has taken over the past two years uh, uh, in regard to as far as being a, taking a more proactive, vice reactive approach. So, with the new policy, you know, talking about strategy at the statecraft level, at the state level, if you will, uh, what are your thoughts now on us, us changing? Does that kind of change your calculus and some of the things that you share from the standpoint of far as uh, how we're looking at the problem set uh, in cyber threats? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, is is this is defending forward another way of expressing this, right? Um, so some people are worried because you say defending forward and people are like, oh, they're going to start attacking people. Uh, that's not been my impression when you actually read the expressions of, of what, the, what the policy says. The sense is that the U.S. needs to move the sharp edge, the, the, the edge of the conflict further away from the United States, right? So having more cyber actors in places like Ukraine, right, or India, because what happens is these, these, these malicious cyber actors, especially at the state level, they start, put, they start trying things out on lesser actors in their regions, right? So if we wanna know what the next thing Russia or China or North Korea is gonna use against us, it helps to be out there to see what they're testing out in their own neighborhood, right? And that comes all the way back to the information piece, right? If we're closely allied with these actors that are defending themselves from these capabilities, then we take that intelligence and we use it to strengthen the whole of the network of networks, right? So I think it makes a lot of sense and it's probably long overdue as an approach. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Folks, we have time for one more question up there in the front. Um, question, you hear a lot about um, ransoms being demanded you know by you know foreign entities and they're paid apparently um, how does the thousands of companies out there and institutions how, how do they guard against that it's uh, I see it on a large scale 
for large corporations having the ability and the, the resources to do that. But you get to the very important, you know, middle and small companies. How does he do it? What, what right. do you do in something like this? So most cybersecurity is an economic choice, right? So, for instance, uh, Richard Clark and company went to the Democratic National Committee and they said, your systems are vulnerable. This is how much it's going to cost to defend your systems. They said, that's interesting. We're going to take that money and use it to get out the vote instead. Wrong choice. Okay. Because they're, right, the result is that their systems are infiltrated and that has vast political implications for them. So when it hurts enough economically, then companies will start to defend themselves. Right? And the reality of capitalism right, is that 10,000 companies a year disappear from the stock exchange. Right? Companies that can't survive these kinds of ransomware attacks or that pay them off or make the wrong economic calculus, they'll disappear. Right? And that's unfortunate, but it's just part of, uh, by my lights, it's part of economics. Right? It's, it's, not, a, it's not a very hospitable, uh, you know, cozy world to live in. And part of the reason I say that is because I think the alternative is much worse which is you get the US government involved in trying to protect these small companies. That, to me, as someone who believes in the power of free markets, uh, is a bad idea, because they'll do a bad job. Right? I mean, it's just, I think that's, that's one of the. Yes, it does definitely increase the cost of doing business. Um, and. I mean, you also have interesting phenomena like you have white hat hackers, right, who are individuals who do pro bono work where they actually go and they find how to break the encryption of ransomware and then they share that information with these small companies, right? So there's a civil society element to this, right, where people are using their expertise to try and help out the little guy. Um, but I think there's only so much that you can do with that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the, that's the issue, right, is that if the IT budget has to get to a certain size where it dwarfs other parts of your budget, then you're just going to skimp on IT and take a risk that you won't be one of the ones who gets attacked, right? Uh, and then, again, information sharing is a big part of this because once one of these ransomware attacks is, is done and you figure out how to... Um, you figure out how to respond to it and patch against it, then everybody can be more defended from that specific attack, right? So better information sharing across companies is also vital, right? And I would argue that that kind of information is best uh, garnered from being on the defense. All right, sir. Thank you so much for your uh, for your time tonight. Uh, now. Luckily, tonight I get the uh, privilege to, uh, to say thank you on behalf of the staff here at the AHEC uh, and, of course, the, uh, the entire War College. Uh, being able to get out in front of this stuff, you can see I've got my own full page of notes here uh, from your discussion, but also the connection with the history. feels like almost like you're coming home to us with everything you've done with us before. So, again, on behalf of everyone here, thank you so much for a wonderful lecture. So we very much appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, ladies everybody. and gentlemen, a quick hand. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.